I'm Christy Potter, the coordinator of the January series, and I just want to welcome you to this, our final day of the January series 2009. Hasn't the time gone quickly? Can you believe it? It's been 15 great days, and I know many of you have come day after day, and I thank you. We've been inspired, and we've been enlightened, and we've learned together. I hope that it's been a blessing for everyone. I'd like to take just a few minutes to thank a few people at the end of the series here. Deanna Dahl, my assistant, she works with me all year long to plan the series, and I couldn't do it without her. And Dennis Steenbergen is our student assistant who's helped us through all kinds of situations during the month, so I greatly appreciate him. A special thank you to the staff in the Fine Arts Center Auditorium here who handle the crowds and so many different details every day, and to our technical staff who record our presentations and send them out over the web to all of our remote sites. They take care of all kinds of details I can't even understand, so I'm greatly appreciating them. Thank you to the coordinators at each of our 22 remote sites. It made it possible for us to share the January series with friends all across North America. A special thank you to Baker Publishing, our series underwriter, and to all of our sponsors and daily underwriters who make the January series a free gift to all. And finally, thanks to all of you, our audience each day, for joining us. Will you please now join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for a great month of learning, for the opportunity to join together in this auditorium and in locations across the country as communities to hear gifted individuals. We ask now that you will be with our friend Sharon as she shares her experiences with us. We know we live in a fallen world and that you have a better plan, one that includes us. May we look for ways to seek justice every day in our own communities and in distant places. Bless us, Lord, during this hour and as we depart and go our separate ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now, Lorraine Kroon, a Kelvin student who is starting an internship with International Justice Mission's office in Guatemala in just one week, will introduce our guest. Please join me in thanking Christy for all the work she's done in this series. In the face of the massive injustices of slavery, sex trafficking, and other forms of violent oppression, Sharon Cohen Wu stands firm as an advocate for the poor in the developing world who urgently need the protection of law. She's a senior vice president of justice operations at International Justice Mission, a human rights organization that provides rescue and restoration for victims of violence and seeks to ensure that public justice systems work for the poor. Mrs. Cohn Wu graduated with honors from the University of Virginia and received her Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School. Following graduation, Ms. Cohn Wu served as a judicial clerk, clerk and later as an associate with a law firm in Washington, D.C., working in litigation and international trade before joining IJM in 2001. She currently directs IJM's operations in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. She has received presidential honor for her work and regularly briefs government officials in the U.S. and abroad, abroad regarding trafficking issues. As an intern at IJM this past spring, I witnessed firsthand Sharon's leadership filled with intelligence, passion, and bravery. Her diligent work has resulted in lives of freedom and hope for thousands of men, women, and children around the world. Calvin College is grateful to Vinwick Risk and Financial Management for underwriting today's presentation. Please welcome Sharon Cohn Wu.
Good afternoon. I'm so thankful um, to be able to be here and honored to be here for the closing day of the 2009 January series. I wish I'd been able to attend some of the others that you had this year, and I'm grateful that um, Calvin makes them available on the Internet, as I've enjoyed more than a few from previous years. And I'm also very grateful to uh, Van Wick Risk and Financial Management for their generosity to make this event possible. Um, as Lorraine said, my name is Sharon Cohn-Wu, and I have the joy of serving with an organization called International Justice Mission. And we are a human rights organization that secures justice for victims of slavery, sexual exploitation, and other forms of violence. IJM lawyers, investigators, and aftercare professionals work with local officials to ensure victim rescue and aftercare, to prosecute perpetrators, and to make local justice systems work effectively and sustainably for the poor. We started out with a small office in Washington, D.C., but now we have offices around the world working with the poorest of the poor. Uh, specifically, we have 14 offices in 10 countries in Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, Latin America, and Africa. The overwhelming majority of our staff are local nationals serving with their own people to secure justice for them and with them. I particularly appreciate speaking at Calvin College because of your long tradition of service, mission, and this promotion of shalom, this peace that means much more than simply the absence of conflict. I've been privileged to serve alongside two professors of yours, Kurt Verbeek and Joanne Van Engen, who are very involved with IJM's partner in Honduras, the Association for a More Just Society. And as Lorraine mentioned, I've been just blessed with working with interns and staff that have been graduates from Calvin College, and we um, are truly grateful for the work you're doing here. Uh, in particular, I'd say I'm encouraged by your commitment to wonder, your commitment to exploration, and as I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about today, your commitment to justice. Um, over the past seven years, I've spent quite a bit of time among those that Jesus characterizes as the least of these, and I've come to know a little bit about their experiences, particularly their experience with violence. I've entitled my talk, The Pursuit of Justice, Finding Courage Amidst the Chaos of Human Rights Abuses. And while there's much that is needed in the face of the crushing brutality against the poor, there's needed greater awareness, more funding for rule of law programs, decisive action by the power brokers of the world, it is this gospel gift of courage that we need as a matter of first order. I'd like to talk for a few moments about university communities. Students are an interesting market. You are eight, uh, 18 million strong, and you apparently have an annual spending power of $312 billion. Now, many, not any one particular of you has that, but <laughs> that's a big group, you have it. Um, so many people look at you, and they think, what can they sell you? How can they persuade you that they have what you need, and your life won't be complete without it? You are to them money. Now, it's possible that you are weary of people telling you that you can change the world. It can feel like it's propaganda. Maybe you become a little cynical. What can you really do? But I want to share a little bit about what I've learned in my experiences. When dictators consider a gathering of students, they think about what you might do, not what you might buy. When power is threatened, it is students who are feared. When power is threatened, dictators don't shut down the commercial districts, they close the schools. Tan Shui, the leader of the military junta in Burma, fears you. He is still pursuing and arresting former students from the 1988 student democracy movement. And do you know why? It's because he knows what you may only suspect. Students change the world. The student movement in South Africa that precipitated the downfall of apartheid changed the world. Students threaten what is because they have an anticipation of what might be 
and what should be. And from time to time, they have been relentless in pursuing it, and the world changes. In part, I think it is because university makes everything seem possible to us. The world is open to us, for many of us, for the first time. For me, the university meant freedom. I was a mostly sarcastic Jewish girl from New Jersey who covered all my fears in a quest for knowledge. Now, it was, to be sure, a thin cover, but it had worked, and I clung to it desperately. But when I got to the university, it stopped working. And more than that, I was confronted by the claims of this Messiah, who seemed to satisfy both my own inarticulated longings and also the articulated prophecies of my own people's scripture. But all of this was supposedly part of a Gentile world that was forbidden to me. This was a problem. Not a small problem, a very big problem. And there isn't time for more in this space, but I ask you to believe me that I ran seemingly in every direction at one time, only to find myself bumping into that same towering personality and ultimately the breathtaking personhood of the living God. Now, if you've ever had that existential sense of being chased, you'll have an idea of what I'm talking about. I quizzed everyone around me about the meaning of life. I enlisted professors in the struggle. I took on street preachers in the student amphitheater. And in the end, weary and hoarse, I became a believer. And I came to know this God of my people, not just the God of the Gentiles. And he speaks. What I'd like to talk about this afternoon is something so modest as changing the world. And it does, in many ways, require a certainty that can be demanding. I love that scene in Prince Caspian in the Narnia Chronicles where the siblings don't wish to follow their younger sister, Lucy, who has seen Aslan. The older sister intones, where do you think you saw him? And Lucy replies, don't talk like a grown-up. I didn't think I saw him. I saw him. No, let's not waste our time. Let's get an understanding of what is true, and then let's act. This may already be your instinct. It was not always mine. And perhaps the greatest liability of obtaining a law degree is the three years you spend where the prevailing philosophy is that nothing is ever air quote right or air quote wrong. It all depends on how you look at it. For the last seven years, I've worked in a world where it very much does not depend on how you look at it. It depends first on how God looks at it, and then it depends on whether we're going to look at it at all, and then how we are going to respond. A word about courage first. Merriam-Webster defines courage as mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. God apparently thought we were going to need it often on this life's journey, which is perhaps why fear not and its variations are among the most repeated commands in the Bible. And it's also perhaps why we are told that perfect love casts out fear, for it is only there in perfect love that we find courage. The temptation is going to be to turn away, to cross to the other side of the street as the Pharisees did when they saw the man who had fell among thieves. To keep us from turning away, it is instructive to remember God's own peculiar preoccupation with the poor, with those that Robert Farrar Capon termed the last, the lost, the least, and the littlest, God's remembrance for the ones the world forgot. Among all of God's character revealed in Scripture, God reserves his strongest commentary for the offense of injustice. Proverbs 14 says, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for his maker. As one Jewish scholar put it, the exploitation of the poor is to us a misdemeanor. To God, it is a disaster. There are people in our world who are suffering, not because they don't have access to hear the gospel preached or don't have food or don't have medicine or don't have shelter. They are suffering because of something they have, not something they lack, 
and what they have is an oppressor. They are the victims of injustice. Regarding the oppressors, scripture says, they sit in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, they murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion in its cover. They lurk that they may seize the poor. They seize the poor and drag them off in their net. Ecclesiastes 4.1 says, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressor was power. Injustice is a specific kind of sin. Injustice is the abuse of power to take from others the good things that God has given them, their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruits of their love and labor. What am I talking about? Child soldiers are being used in more than 30 countries. The State Department says that in India, 60 to 75% of all prisoners are still awaiting trial. In North Korea, an estimated 150,000 to 200,000 persons are believed to be held in remote detention camps. The government continues to deny the existence of such camps. There are 27 million slaves in the world today, more than at any other time in history. Slaves are thought to generate a yearly total profit of $13.6 billion for their slaveholders. Approximately 80% of the people trafficked across international borders each year are women and girls, and up to 50% are minors. One million new children become victims of trafficking each year. In South Africa, 40% of women would characterize their first experience of intercourse as forced. An assessment in Nepal of trafficking in girls found that 38% of rescued victims suffered from HIV-AIDS as well as STDs and tuberculosis. In South Africa, a woman is raped every 26 seconds. Let us talk for a few moments about one of these statistics. That is, 27 million people owned by other people. We're told that this is more than at any other time in history, that it is illegal in all places where it is known to exist, and that it is a thriving industry that provides billions of dollars of income to slaveholders, slave traders, and the rest who profit from the business. But what does it mean for a man? Sri Ram is a man. He's also a slave. He was working for a few farms that were near his village when a relative offered him a job in a brick kiln for three or four months. The owner of the brick kiln even provided Sri Ram in advance against his wages. Sri Ram became a slave. His job was to load the hot bricks onto the truck. At times, Sri Ram's hands would become burned from the bricks and the owner would verbally abuse him when he was too injured to work. One of the greatest indignities of being a slave is that your very movements are controlled. You're not free to leave. Sometimes the slave owner uses the fiction of an illegal debt, that is the advance that the owners use to ensnare the victims, as the justification for why they cannot leave. This, like slavery, is also against the law in the country in which Sri Ram is enslaved. In Sri Ram's case, the owner did not bother with the niceties of that fiction. Instead, when Sri Ram asked if he could pay off the money and then leave, the owner said no. Even if he paid the owner, he was forced to stay and could not leave. Sri Ram's wife, 12-year-old daughter, and 5-year-old son were all held as the property of this man. And they were forced to labor in the brickyard without pay. Sri Ram and the others were forced to make bricks by hand, seven days a week, 10 to 14 hours a day. I've met a number of slaves and my colleagues, literally thousands, and the stories vary, but they always involve the degradation and humiliation of one individual for the profit and pleasure of another. The book of Exodus describes it this way. The Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and their lives were made bitter and hard with labor in brick and mortar. The owner of the brick kiln is a powerful man in his community. He's the vice president of a local branch of a national political party. 
His face is featured on political banners all around the area. In fact, he bragged on undercover video how he's well connected with the police and local village leaders. There are at least 37 slaves in this man's kiln, and he is known to beat them, lock them up, chase them down if they try to leave. He doesn't pay them in currency, only in rations, so that there is no possibility of their going free. Now, no amount of modern mumblings about it depends on how you look at it can redefine what is happening in the relationship between the brick kiln owner and Sri Ram. The powerful man is brutalizing the powerless through coercion and deception and without interruption. He is unrestrained as he daily breaks the law. He boasts that the police will instead serve him if one of his slaves tries to run away. Sri Ram and his family will remain the property of the slave owner unless and until someone intervenes. Indeed, this legacy will transcend generations, as in other cases we've worked where the property owner can leave his slaves to his children, and the children of the slaves themselves are enslaved for their parents' debts. Sri Ram himself noted that one of the things that saddened him the most was the way that the owner treated the children of slaves. This is the life of a slave. Here the slave owner boasts how he keeps his slaves and why they are not free to leave. Millions of people are enslaved around the world in a similar fashion. They're enslaved by fraudulent illegal debts, threats of force, and coercion. In all of these places, it is explicitly illegal, and yet the law affords no protection for the poor. There's another type of slavery that afflicts millions of people today. It goes by various names, forced prostitution, sex trafficking, commercial sexual exploitation, but at its core, it is the serial rape for profit of millions of children and young women around the globe. Now, we would choose not to look upon these things, except that I am certain that God looks upon them both day and night and is calling his people to respond. I was in Thailand in 2002 and had just accompanied the police on my first brothel raid. And walking around, I found this cruel juxtaposition of childhood preserved and childhood taken. There was this Mickey Mouse journal I found that had the doodles of a young girl on one page and on the next side had the ledger of that same girl where she wrote down the date, the number of customers, and the amount as she tried to pay down the false debt that the brothel keeper told her she owed. The raid was not successful as the brothel keeper had suspected police activity and moved all the girls out before we had arrived. But five days later, coordinated action by the police resulted in the five minor girls being rescued. One of those girls, who I'll call Simla, was from a minority ethnic community about one and a half hours outside the brothel. She was 15 years old and had been in the brothel for two and a half long years. Now, some of the girls were buoyant to be rescued. Simla was not. Even the investigators remarked that she'd been the most frightened of all during the undercover interviews, terrified that the brutal brothel manager would think she was up to something. This was a brothel manager who the girls reported would beat them if they wanted to go home, beat them if they cried, and beat them if they looked tired when a customer would come during the day instead of the evening. 
And it was on that same trip that I became aware of an extraordinary place of suffering outside of Phnom Penh, Cambodia, called Sve Pak. It was there our investigators had confirmed children under 10 years of age were being offered to men, particularly Westerners, for sexual exploitation. We had confirmed the information through an undercover investigation, but we were unable to persuade the Cambodian authorities to do anything about it. Particularly, we could not persuade them to conduct the raids that would rescue these girls or to arrest the offenders. An investigator and I traveled to Phnom Penh to determine whether the children were still being sold, and the undercover investigation again confirmed the assaults on these small girls. The girl you see here being carried on the hip of another is being offered for sexual exploitation. Again, we gave the information to the Cambodian authorities, but again, we were unable to secure relief for the children. We sent a team back in January and February of 2003 to conduct a comprehensive undercover investigation of the area and obtained evidence of approximately 45 girls under the age of 15 who were being offered for sexual exploitation and identified more than 25 men and women who, in offering them, were committing violations of Cambodian local law. Around that same time, a girl I'll call Mien from a poor family was in a desperate situation. Creditors were knocking at her mother's door daily, along with pimps and brothel owners, who, knowing the dire circumstances of her family, sought to pressure Mien into supporting her family. After time, it worked, and 14-year-old Mien was sold to Sve Pak to a foreigner who offered the highest price to rape a virgin. For nearly six years, she suffered daily sexual assaults. Now, what keeps people like Sri Ram, Simla, and Mien enslaved? Evil decisions by slave owners and their traffickers, for sure. It is estimated that slaves generate $13.6 billion in yearly profit for their slaveholders. But the evil which preserves millions of people as human chattel today requires, it requires the apathy of everyone else. Brutal indifference is a necessary and critical component to maintain a system of slavery. What the Bible described as unconcern nullifies the law, rendering it lifeless for those it was intended to defend. Where is courage in this equation? The absence or presence of it determines the trajectory of the lives of millions of people. The conversations I've had with victims of violence around the world contain a surprising insistence for justice in environments where they are unlikely to find it. One Kenyan mother whose daughter had been sexually assaulted by a family member had pursued justice where she had little expectation she could achieve it. But when I asked her why, including why she persisted in the face of harassments from her family members and neglect and incompetence from justice officials, she said, I am not doing it for me, but I need my daughter to know that there is justice. I think that this is because we are hardwired to believe that there should be justice. And scripture entreats us, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. We're called to see injustice and called to combat it whenever we see it. We must not leave room for confusion. The Lord hates injustice, and it matters. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Or as plainly as can be stated in Isaiah 61.8, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery, and iniquity. What do we imagine God does then in the face of such brutal suffering as Sri Ram's, Simla's, and Mian's? 
I think God asks his people to stand up, show up, speak up on behalf of the oppressed. Isaiah 117 is a directive. Seek justice to rescue the oppressed, defend the fatherless, and provide for the widow. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that we are Christ's ambassadors to the world as if God himself was making his appeal through us. We are the instruments of his grace to demonstrate the good news of his love through justice. But it's not so simple, is it? What obscures our ability to be interested in the things that interest God? I think it is the smallness of us and the massiveness of the need. Our smallness, we have two kinds. The first is the smallness of our concerns. My concerns are what impacts me, my day, my circumstances, my needs. And then the second is the smallness of our expectations. In frantic navel-gazing, I come up with lots of good reasons why I can't do whatever it is I fear God is expecting of me. Now, I'm a lawyer, right? So my lists are alphabetized or in diminishing order of significance. And they are mercilessly footnoted with all of my past that justify why I cannot in the present. One of the most powerful prophets of justice knew this well. Amos said, I was not a prophet nor a prophet's son. I was a shepherd and I also took care of the sycamore fig trees. In other words, I wasn't all that much, but the Lord took me. And then there is this other side. If our smallness stands us on our heels, the massiveness of the need can knock us backward altogether. We are stifled by the enormity of the need in our world today. Because the problem is, is it isn't just Sri Ram, Simla, Mian, and the little girls in Svepak. It is 27 million women, children, and men. And for my own heart, I must confess that even thinking through this talk, I looked over at the grinning smile of my four-and-a-half-month-old daughter and found my newly tenderized heart cut afresh by considering what immense injury must visit just one girl who is the victim of sexual exploitation. But here it is. Despair is frankly an indulgence that the oppressed can ill afford. And this afternoon, I'd like to bring you the good news that God is not knocked backward by the massiveness of the need. It does not blow the contours of each person he so passionately loves and he so doggedly pursues. And when I'm tempted to despair, I think that's a failure on my part to act as if I actually believe what God says is actually true. Writing more than 150 years ago, a social theorist named John Stuart Mill, was trying to explain how words end up losing their meaning. And he casually offered the suggestion that the best example of this was Christians. Christians, he observed, seem to have the most amazing ability to say the most wonderful things without actually believing them. Most disturbing to me was his list of things that the believers like me actually do say and the way that he examined them one by one to show how different my life would be if I actually lived like I believed those things. As Mr. Mill concluded, the sayings of Christ coexist passively in her mind, producing hardly any effect beyond what is caused by mere listening to words so amiable and bland. Blessed are the poor. The meek shall inherit the earth. God will not be mocked. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I know and believe all these things, but of my belief in these familiar passages Mr. Mill wrote 150 years ago, she's not insincere when she says that she believes in these things. She does believe them, as one believes what she has always heard lauded and never discussed. 
She has a habitual respect for the sound of such things. But when it comes to conduct, she looks around for Mrs. A and for Mrs. B to direct her how far to go in obeying Christ. And how far do I find I should go? To be brutally honest, as far as I am safe, as far as I am in control, as far as the risks seem manageable, and as far as my sphere of perceived certain competence will take me. But I see evidence everywhere of a better way, of people choosing to respond as if they actually believe what Jesus said was true, people who at cost respond to God's invitation to pursue justice. C.S. Lewis observed, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. My colleagues in Kenya endeavored to honor such action by presenting award, an award called the Champion for Justice to an individual in the community who had no legal obligation, but at risk to themselves became an advocate for justice for the poor. In the past years, this included the son of a landowner who defended two shepherds wrongly accused by his father and a woman who went against her own family to get justice for a young girl who had been sexually abused. Last year, IJM Kenya honored a widow who created an organization to serve orphaned children in one of Nairobi's slums. Despite numerous death threats from perpetrators and a profound lack of police support, she has persisted to love and protect these children. In the face of great personal cost, these men and women live on the more jagged edges of faith and manifest God's love when and where it counts most through courage. In the case of Shiram, who was enslaved in the brick kiln, my colleagues labored to also live as if God's word was actually true. They worked with local authorities to arrange a raid of the facility. But in these cases, the slaves themselves must testify in front of the government officials as to their situation. A mob had formed friendly to the owner and hostile to the intervention. One young boy had to brave the gauntlet of literally being ping-ponged by the mob as he was moved to the front to be inquired by the government. And on that day, fear won, and all but three of the slaves were sent back to their owner in captivity. It was more than a month of frustration and persistence later when during the second raid, Suram's daughter was rescued. And ultimately, Suram and his wife were rescued, and a week later, his son was found, and the family was reunited. Suram is now working as a free man, and as he recounts, he is able to take vacation with his family without worry. For Simla, after she was rescued, we were permitted to take the girls back into the now-closed brothel to help them collect their things. Clothes, posters, and a radio, those items any teenage girl would hold precious. I walked in with Simla. I remember her helping her sort through her clothes. One of the other girls explained how the writing on the wall was one of the children's ways of trying to keep a public account of her paying down the false debt the brothel keeper said that she owed. Now, you walk into a brothel holding a little girl's hand, and the power of evil will nearly knock you down. But walk out of a brothel holding a little girl's hand, and the magnitude of God's rescue will send you to your knees in worship. Simla spent several years in an aftercare home. She learned a trade. She obtained citizenship, which was critical to her safety and employment, and was recently married. In Svepak, authorities ultimately worked with us in 2003 and deployed 80 officials to rescue the girls and arrest the perpetrators. On March 29, 37 girls were rescued and 13 suspects were arrested. But what of Mian? In Mian's case, she had been in Svepak when it was raided in 2003, but she had hidden fear. In 2006, IJAM was working on a case in northern Cambodia, and Mian and 20 other victims were rescued from a brothel fronting as a massage parlor. 
Mian bravely testified against her offenders and they were convicted and sentenced, sending a message to criminals there that they will go to jail for exploiting children. Mian was transferred to a high-quality aftercare center where she encountered rest and safety for the first time in a very long time and also learned to trade in tailoring. During her time at the aftercare center, Mian experienced something of courage and healing, an opportunity that speaks volumes about God's redemption. Because the aftercare center had rented a building that had operated as a brothel before IJM had helped close it down in 2003. They'd rented the building, they'd renovated the abandoned building and reopened it as a community center. This was the very same brothel where Mian was first trafficked and assaulted. Mian now volunteers there at the community center where she brings hope to other children and to their families. I look at the courage of Sri Ramana's family, Simla and Mian, and am provoked to again look up and look out. When I was asked to give this talk, I spent some long paces considering what I could hope to bring to your conversation. Because at the end of this talk, you'll join some friends for lunch, and the day will creep in. The new semester, maybe you have exams, the job you need, the guy you don't. <laughs> different things for different people. But understand, I'm not trying to trivialize those matters, because I have my own internal laundry list, right? They're not small matters. They're what actually matter in the real moments of today. My internal laundry list would include, here's hoping for a chat-free seatmate on the plane because I really need to work. I need to put gas in the car on the way home. I hope our daughter has had two naps today. And can I stop by the dry cleaners or will I be wearing a dirty suit to work tomorrow? But I have this sense, and this is why I love meeting with university communities. I have this strong sense that we are also called to attend to other matters. That Jesus' inaugural address wherein he said that the Father had sent him to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the sight of the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, was meant also to be an invitation to us. My own liability is that I sometimes mistake my interest for action. But being moved is not the same thing as moving. And finding an issue compelling is not the same thing as being compelled to actually do something about it. But I believe that God demands and provides courage not just to give us character, but to give others life. And in this pursuit of justice, I am reminded of Dr. Martin Luther King's words reflecting on the parable of the Good Samaritan. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, he said, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they journey on life's highway. I don't know what that looks like for you. In some ways it would be presumptuous for me to guess. But I suspect that God's transforming work in you will include an invitation to pursue justice wherever injustice crosses your path. I ask you to please not believe that there are folks out there that have it all wrapped up and all taken care of. There isn't. I have looked. We are all called to greater courage. Dear ones, really, we are all called to wake up tomorrow a little braver than we find ourselves today. I was not a prophet, nor a prophet's daughter, but then God. John 2.5 says, do whatever he tells you. This is the divine invitation. Like Sri Ram, Simla, and Mian, you were not just rescued from, you were rescued for, for purpose, for promise, and for God's infinite glory. Thank you.
We have time for some questions. There are two microphones in the back of the auditorium, and if you line up there, we'll get to as many of your questions as we can. I want to thank you so much, and I just I want to ask you, as a believer in this community, what would you tell the people here to do outside of what we already pos more than likely are doing, which is to write the check as we feel that God wants us to, and to pray. What, what other, you know, many of us have what I call fire in our belly about these issues. Yeah. And so what, what would you tell us to do? Thank you. Um, I know that the Grand Rapids community is very committed to the issue of justice, and I am greatly encouraged by the work um, that Calvin College is doing on this. Um, and I do think prayer is um, the essential um, ingredient to the transforming work of God in this area. Um, and also, as you said, as you're led with regard to finances, I think um, a couple things. One, I would say that you, you should have an eye for where there's injustice in your own community because I, I've yet to travel to one that where there is none. And so I think um, as you pray for an eye that sees, as God sees, issues of injustice in your community, that he will lead you to ways that you can serve um, to bring power to the powerless here. Um, and then um, sort of specifically, I think you were handed um, postcards, which Larry was going to talk about. Maybe you just want to talk about that uh, now. Sure. Um, as you came in, you were probably handed one of these abolition pledge postcards. A concrete way that you can get involved with the work of justice right now is to advocate with your members in Congress. Um, through foreign aid, diplomatic pressure, and trade reform, the government has the capacity to make a tremendous positive impact, but they need to know that these are issues that we care about. So um, if you fill out the back of this postcard, you're asking your congressman to make a commitment to use their influence in really specific ways to end modern-day slavery in our lifetime. So if you fill this out and bring it back to the table in the West Lobby, we'll hand deliver these to the senators of, of Michigan, Carl Levin and Debbie Stabenow, and really hope to see some great change through your voice. Great. Thanks, Lori. I think there are, with a new administration and with a, a significant changeover in, the, in, the, in Congress, there will be opportunities to speak uh, with regard to sort of ambassadorial appointments and appointments of people, uh, critical people in the government with regard to what will be their priorities when they are positioned overseas. And so uh, both through checking our website and getting on um, uh, an email distribution list, we can update you on various things that we're asking people. Because there's a big movement, I think, in the in the U.S. to get behind issues of justice as they um, are brutalizing the poor. And so um, we're trying to keep people updated on ways they can speak into particular uh, issues at critical times. So you can find out more information that way as well. Thank you. Um, as Westerners, how are we looked at in the, those parts of the world that we're in now? Um, are we looked on as outsiders, interferers? And then a second question would be, um, <clears throat> excuse me, no, I'll answer that one first. Um, that's a, uh, an, a, um, an interesting point. I think um, it's 
at least worth saying first that in terms of IJM, the overwhelming majority of our staff are local national. So they're looked as, as members of their own community and they're fighting justice with and um, for their people. Um, in terms of the way the U.S. is viewed, I think it's mixed. Um, I think probably in the last six years of my travel, it's gone up and down. Um, one of the ways you can avoid uh, sort of um, accusations of imperialism or the like is you're, we are only working on issues where it's already a violation of that country's local law, right? So we're not actually saying a thing is bad that other people think is good. No, the, the country's already said this is bad and we want it to stop. And we're just partnering um, with the government itself to help it get rid of something that it's already said it doesn't want to have. And so that sort of spares you a lot of the conversations about um, imposing culture on one side or the other because actually our, our staff are certainly not inclined to do that at all. It's really finding a local solution um, to a problem in a, in a city. And one other question. Um, there, if you can address it, there's a growing problem in our own country in respect to slave trade and um, girls being held for prostitution, kidnapped, et cetera. Could you address that at all? Yeah, there is a, um, a significant issue of sexual exploitation in the United States and also slavery and domestic servitude um, in the United States. There are um, a, a good number of um, excellent groups that are doing work on that um, in the U.S. I would uh, highlight probably the work of Polaris Project um, that's doing work on that. Um, I think that the FBI and the Department of Justice and uh, Homeland Security are very interested in this issue. It connects to other issues that are priorities for them as well. And so I have found um, law enforcement response, at least federal law enforcement response, um, to be aggressive on this. And um, I'm encouraged by some of the things we're seeing lately. Thanks. I, I have a, a couple of questions. Uh, one is, do you work closely with Amnesty International? And the other question is, uh, what is the hope for the people of Burma? I saw the latest uh, uh, movie, uh, Rambo. It had a trailer with three different people talking about the terrible situation there now. Yeah, um, Amnesty International is an excellent organization that's um, doing a lot of good work, uh, particularly in political prisoners and the like. Um, because we don't do, uh, we certainly uh, work with them when our interests are the same. We are working, uh, we're working on ongoing issues of violent oppression and specific cases, and I don't, I cannot recall a case that we've worked on together, but I don't think there'd be a, a place in which we were uh, in disagreement or in conflict on it. So um, we just don't intersect that much. On the issue of Burma, which uh, in my mind is one of the worst governments uh, on the earth today, um, though it has some um, competitors in that, um, uh, we have a lot of friends in Burma because a lot of the Burmese girls are trafficked down into northern Thailand. Um, I don't know what the answer is apart um, from um, my own uh, theories, which are not appropriate to share, but I should say that um, uh, prayer for Burma and for the people of Burma to be able to have a successful democracy movement. There are sort of two strands of it rising up, but a people cannot be uh, crushed forever. And, um, and I think the paranoia of the government in the response to the cyclone is evidence of um, its losing its, its hold and its grip on the people, and um, we should daily pray for them. Um, this is sort of on the heels of what the gentleman just re, um, mentioned, but um, my, I'm very curious with UNICEF and other organizations 
that have been long-standing organizations committed to children in the world, why there isn't an alliance amongst organizations such as yourself to make uh, what is more global um, a connection. Yeah. Um, actually, all of those groups working on trafficking, we partner with in one way or the other in the cities where we work. And so a lot of it is a, a local solution. So the anti-trafficking groups, for example, in Cambodia have a, uh, almost all of the cities where there's a significant amount of anti-trafficking work have a network. And so all the people are doing uh, work re with regard to anti-trafficking will be part of that network and each group lends its own piece to that. And so I think there's a lot of um, overwhelming cooperation on the ground. If one, if somebody has an, um, an expertise, for example, in investigations and prosecutions, whereas IOM has an expertise in uh, being able to repatriate, we work with them on repatriating the girls who, let's say, have been trafficked to Malaysia but need to get home to China. Um, so it just depends on what you're offering to the problem, what you bring to it. Second question, and that yeah. is, do you prefer being an NGO or do you wish to be aligned with the government? Um, I think that would probably bring in a whole host of my political views on various things, but I, I think it's... Um, in some ways, it's easier to be an NGO. We don't have a political uh, affiliation. We generally don't take views on political issues at all, except to the extent that they're essential to our mission. Uh, we have bipartisan support. We work on what we consider no-brainer issues in that there's no one standing on the side of the brothel keepers and the rapists and the slave owners and lobbying for their benefit. And so we find that as a, an NGO, we can bring everyone together to an issue and not get distracted by, I think, some of what can be largely distracting in a, in a bureaucracy or an administration. Thank you. Thanks. Um, my question has to do with international human rights law. Um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights just celebrated a 60-year birthday. And a lot of the injustices that you speak about, they're conventions that have been created to protect individuals across the globe and ensure that does, that doesn't happen. Um, my question is, what do you think needs to be done to strengthen international law so that we can see greater adoption in countries where injustices like this are occurring? Yeah, it's a really important point because there is this Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There are these protocols that have been um, adopted or constructed by a number of nations, and then a lot of countries have adopted them. And then after you adopt an international treaty, your domestic legislator, your parliament, has to enact, pass enacting legislation, which turns this international protocol into something that's actually binding in your own country, so binding on local officials and actually changes conduct. But that has to go through your local law. And this has happened in sort of the second generation of human rights, as a lot of these countries have enacted anti-trafficking legislation, for example, anti-slavery legislation. And it's, if it's not perfect, and, and none of them are sort of the model that maybe were created by the protocol, it's pretty good, and it's ample, um, and it's, it, it, it would work. It's a blunt instrument, but it would work. The problem, actually, is at least to the extent we find it, because, again, we only work in places where it's already against the local law, what it is we're trying to stop. The problem is, is those laws were maybe enacted um, and are sort of a lofty ideal of, yes, girls shouldn't be sold for um, commercial sexual exploitation. That sounds right. But then there's no, the enacting legislation doesn't, 
uh, include either the sort of teeth or the resources to make that law powerful enough? Like, have you trained the police in the new anti-trafficking law? What do those definitions actually mean? Who are they supposed to be looking for? And then have you provided the resources? Do you have a unit that's actually got a responsibility to enforce um, this law and to combat this crime? Um, and then you generally have that the the prevailing perception may not be in line with what the law is that's been enacted. So it takes time for that to become uh, a law that has any meaning to it. So for our part, what we see is, um, is good international law, but very weak, if any, um, domestic implementation of a local law that was drafted to be in conformity to it. And that's where we'd like to see the resources directed, is to making those things a reality and not just a piece of paper you can sort of wrap meat with. Question yeah. to that. Then, do you think it makes more sense to make sure that when the conventions are being written, that they're written in as being um, self-executing? Uh, well, you're probably you're getting out of my zone of expertise. I don't know. I, I don't know even if being self-executing. What makes them meaningful? In my experience, what makes them meaningful is that the Minister of Interior has called up his uh, subordinates and has said, this matters and I want your reporting numbers in January. And then those subordinates call up their subordinates and it goes down the chain of police command and they say, this matters to my boss, it now matters to you, go make sure this happens. And that's the way you actually get laws enforced. Um, where I don't actually think that the, the saying of anything different in them um, would change that you need power to actually be give, attached to it meaningfully in people's jobs and careers and promotion schedules, people being fired for corruption, people being given the resources and the training necessary to actually execute on those laws. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, I recently read the New Yorker article about um, international justice mission. I thought it was a fantastic article. But the author really raised some of the tensions between being a Christian, explicitly Christian organization, and the possibility of not limiting yourself by yeah. that. And I'm wondering if you could just comment on the conversations you guys are having at your office about that and where you sort of fall as far as a response to what that author wrote. Yeah, uh, Samantha Power uh, traveled with uh, a few of us um, to some of our offices and, and wrote an article in New Yorker, I think two weeks ago or something, um, uh, on Gary Haugen, uh, the president and CEO, my boss, um, and raised this issue that um, she loved the model for human rights and thought this sort of hands-on uh, rule of law, making the law actually work for the poor, was critical both in development and in, in just advancing human rights. She's one of the foremost experts on, on human rights. Um, but her concern was that if you limit your hiring to only those people who are believers, you're, you have limited the universe of people you can impact. Um, and, uh, and she spends a bit of time in the article talking about this. I mean, for me and, and for the organization, but I speak um, uh, sort of my characterization of it, we believe that um, we need God to do this work. Um, and that God helps us in doing the work and enables us to do it well. And so, as a result, um, we want to be within a community of faith so that we can do this work together and we can do it well and we can ask for God's help openly and often and all the time. Um, and I understand that that means that there are certain cases where you will be short-staffed for some time because you cannot find that right person for the job. But to us, it's worth it to, to do the work. And I think probably as I 
um, was somewhat inartfully quoted in the article, like, I, I just wouldn't want to do it another way. Not this type of work, not knowing that your colleague is inside the brothel and is being threatened by a bunch of thugs and we're not sure how we're going to get him out or a mob has attacked our vehicle or we can't get this eight-year-old out because we can't get the police to work with us and what are we going to do? Like, I want to work with people who believe in a powerful God who answers prayer um, and will give us the wisdom and will give us favor among... Um, women and men to get it done. And so uh, I enjoy having conversations with her about it. I'm sure I will have many more, but, um, but on that, I think, um, I think it can sound exclus exclusive um, because it uh, sounds like a club you can't join. But if you think of, but it's not meant that way. And if you think more of Mother Teresa and the, um, and the sisters in Calcutta, um, I think in part because of uh, the requirements of complete chastity, poverty, and obedience. There's not as many people clamoring. But, um, but, but it's still, it is also she would say such a thing. Like I think she, in one of the books I was reading on her, she says, uh, except for this life, we could not do the work. right? And I, I think it's sort of that way for us. Except for the life of God and me, I could not do this work. I'm not sure I would want to, but I don't think I could. Thanks. Um. I was a foster parent for three years, and during that time, the two children that I had, their oldest sister, they were removed from the situation because she was being repeatedly raped by her stepfather, and her mother was allowing it and even offering to be in the room while it happened so she wouldn't be nearly as scared. The state of Michigan and Muskegon County did not respond to terminating this mother's rights initially, which ultimately led to the death of the oldest daughter. When I went to them and argued about why my five-year-old was on a ventilator due to their negligence and their ignorance and their inability to stop a dangerous situation, their response to me was, I didn't understand the culture. And their response was, you know, these things just happen sometimes and we can't control everything. I've been trying to combat the state of Michigan as well as the county that I live in. And as a result, I was not allowed to adopt my kids. So my question to you is, how do I, on a local, state, and national level, work to stop the sexual abuse and the allowance of continued abuses of children in my own country because I know for a fact it happens on a daily basis. I've seen it happen and I've seen up close and personal what it does to children and it killed one of the children that I loved and it nearly killed three of the other children. Mm. So if there's anything that you know that I can do, I would be more than happy to start doing it right this minute. Mm. Well, I'm very sorry. Um, I think uh, there is no doubt uh, that the estimates range from about 40% um, of women by the time they reach adulthood will have been uh, victims of some sort of sexual assault or abuse. Um, I think the underreporting of that um, abuse is so great that we don't really know um, how great it is. I think um, what I would, I think the, to, to the response to the suggestion that you don't understand the culture, I think um, is a, uh, well, I, 
I think it borders on racism and it's a deliberate sort of insult to communities. I have had people tell me um, what is happening to these girls being trafficked in the brothel is a result of poverty. And I think that's a, a uh, extraordinarily um, uh, ruthless um, and incorrect commentary on the poor because I know people who are poor who would take a train um, rather than have it hit their child and who would starve rather than have their child go without food. So to suggest that as long if we all hit some level of poverty, we too would sell our children to be raped is um, it's just incorrect, um, but it also um, reflects just a, a misunderstanding of the community. And I would say the same for any comments that refer to culture as if there was a culture in which um, it was intended to be acceptable. I think um, what I, I would, because I don't do work in Michigan and domestic advocacy, I would try to hook you up with individuals um, who did and to bring to account um, officials who um, failed to take action, but also in sort of a prospective way to, um, to work so that people um, in CPS and others do take the appropriate action. There is um, a group in, in Peru of, uh, of mothers, about 200 of them, whose children were sexually assaulted, and they formed a group. The, the little kids group was called the Tamar group. I, I don't remember what the mother's group is called, but it was to uh, provide encouragement, mutual encouragement to one another because their children had all been sexually assaulted, generally by members of their family. Um, but it was also so that they themselves could be advocates to prevent it from happening to other children. And I think to the extent that there's a group of, of uh, mothers or uh, adopted or foster mothers who, um, whose children have been sexually assaulted, that that group would have a powerful voice in somewhat the same way that Mothers Against uh, Drunk Driving did. And that would be the movement I would look to see. Um, but I don't have much more to offer on that except my uh, share your anger and sorrow. Well, one of the previous speakers uh, mentioned what can we still do, and I think there's one thing more that we can do, and it is right to our representatives and let our voice heard. Because if you think that the Civil Liberties Union is only a small group, and what they got done, God was kicked out of the court, court uh, out of everything, and it's only a small group, and I think we don't let our voices hear enough. I'm very upset when I see so much injustice. If you think of the mayor of Detroit who did perjury, what an example for the kids. And the people didn't try to get him out. I asked many friends, and especially the elderly people, I'm jealous of you that you can still travel. But I mean, we older people, we can sit home and let our voice be heard. Like now that Blagosevich, but that are the people that are governing us. We have to let our voice hurt, and I feel very strongly about it, apart from all the other things and the check writing and so forth. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I think we're out of time. Um, thanks once again to Sharon Cohn Wu for speaking with us today. And she will be in the back. Sorry, yes. As I was saying, she'll be in the West Lobby to greet you. Um, if you exit out the doors, you'll be able to purchase some books um, from IJM talking more about justice and your role in seeking justice. And um, you can also drop off these cards at that table in the West Lobby. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah.